Well, it's Christmas Eve, so it's very appropriate that we be thinking about our Lord, thinking about the images that the Bible presents to us of him. We'll be looking at this image from Revelation in just a moment. I want to thank those who are visiting with us today. What an encouragement you are. We've got several of our own members that are out, so it's always good to have others filling up those empty seats. We thank you for that. Grateful for those who may be joining us online, whether live or if you'll be listening in later. We pray this will be useful and encouraging for you. Our desire is to share Christ with you. We want you to know him as we do. We want you to help us to know him better. If you've got questions or comments, criticisms about the things you're hearing here, please share those with us. We'll be glad to look into the scriptures together with you and and to do better at serving him who has made us for his purposes. Today I want to look at Revelation chapter 1. You know, typically this time of the year we're thinking about Jesus, but we're thinking about a little baby in a manger. And uh, that is certainly an image the Bible presents for us, that God's strength is made perfect in weakness, and he came and became one of us. He became a weak man to overcome the weakness of death uh, and show that he was not, in fact, a man at all. We also see him as a man and the struggles that that he went through and the way he lived and the way he was persecuted. But for those who were being persecuted, who believed on him and who were striving to serve him early in the first century, And then as as the first century waxed into the second, they were suffering very, very severe persecution. They were suffering at the point of a sword, and their families were being slaughtered because of their belief. And many of them were beginning to falter and to wonder if it was worth it. And so this vision that John receives at the close of the first century is a vision of the Lord that they are actually serving. And it is a powerful vision, and a vision that I hope will encourage you as you consider the God we serve, what he's really like. This Lord that has been glorified and taken up to be at the right hand of God. I want to read again verses 12 through 17 from the English Standard here. I want you to sort of picture John. Here's an intimate friend of Jesus. Now, he hasn't seen him for about 60 years. This is near the end of John's life, and Jesus has been taken up sometime in the 30s. This is written in the 90s, perhaps, in the first century. About 60 years since John has seen Jesus in in person, since the last time he saw him go up into the clouds, and this is what he sees. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven gold lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Pretty frightening image, but actually it's an image of comfort. And that's what John will show us. He was receiving a revelation. It's a revelation that's given to John the Apostle. The name of this book is Apocalypsis in Greek. That's the word revelation. That's why it's sometimes called the Apocalypse. It means a laying bare or an uncovering, really a removing of a cover is the idea. Something has been hidden down through history, down through the ages, and God is pulling back the cover. Literally, we'll see in the second half of the book, actually pulls back the curtain off of heaven and lets John see into heaven. And then John writes these things down so that we can see into heaven as well. It's the unveiling of a mystery and not the hiding of a mystery. It's a shame to me 
that so many people make the book of Revelation their playground and make all of these things be hidden meanings that only a few can understand. God was revealing this so that the church in the first century and, and us could understand what's really going on and why things look so bad, but that we have an absolute hope that the strongest is going to win and has already won, and that is Jesus whom we're serving. Apocalyptic literature, it talks, it's, a, it's a whole style of literature. There are several non-biblical books that are written in this style, a few parts of other biblical books that are. But it's a type of literature that relies heavily on symbols. I appreciate the New King James rendering, as Christopher read for us just a moment ago, that what John is receiving, it says in verse 1, was signified to him by an angel. That word signified has a word in the middle of it, at the beginning of it. Actually, it's the word sign. This book of Revelation is a book written in signs, and that's why it's become the playground for so many people. Because you can make a sign be whatever you want it to be. But that's not the intent here. He's signifying, and most of the time he tells us what the sign is. He'll say, those seven stars you saw, those seven lampstands, he tells you what that sign is. It's the angels of the churches. It's the churches themselves. He'll talk about a sign later that's a great dragon. We don't have to guess what that is. It's not some mythical monster going to come up out of the sea. That is Satan. He's just presenting him to us in a way that is grotesque, so we recognize the power he has, but that God is even more powerful than this dragon that's going to come and try to eat the saints. So since it relies on signs and on images and on visions, what God tells, what the angel tells uh, uh, John here in the book of Revelation is, write what you see. He doesn't say try to explain it. He just says write what you see. He's presenting sort of a play that goes across the stage and we get to watch all of these things happen. It's because those things convey a message. Sometimes images convey more messages than words can, and that's what we're getting in this kind of literature. So John was actually invited in chapter 4 to go up into heaven. He sees a door opened into heaven. He's already in a vision, but then he sees this door open into heaven, and he goes up into heaven, and he's in the very throne room of God. And from there, all of the events of the book of Revelation take place. And then we'll see this phrasing, a great sign appeared in heaven. Several times through the book, we'll see these great signs. Sometimes it's an angel. Sometimes it's a dragon. Sometimes it's a lady. But we see these great signs that appear and often we're told what they are. Other times, it's not even necessary we're told what they are. It's so obvious what they are. But it's not something that's meant to hide. It's meant to reveal. And so simile and metaphor will be used all through the book. It is like this. He'll describe his hair like wool, like snow. Something is like something is a simile. Or he'll say, those stars are the angels, or those lampstands are the churches. That's a metaphor when something is representing something else. There's something in the vision that reflects something of the nature of what it is. And so that's this idea of apocalyptic literature. So the reason it's written this way is because typically, typically apocalyptic literature was written in a period of distress. Can you imagine some Christian walking with the book of Revelation and the book says, Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman government. <laughs> and some Roman soldier gets that book and starts reading, oh, you're a subversive group, I see. You guys think you're going to overrun the government. But when it's got these symbols that represent Roman government or really any government that opposes God's rule, Jesus is the one who's pictured as a little tiny lamb that beats the dragon. <laughs> okay, you've got your fantasy book. Go ahead. <laughs> it doesn't look as threatening that way. And so apocalyptic literature was usually written in times of distress so people could send codified messages to each other and the people receiving it would know right away what those images meant. So how are we going to know what the images mean in the book of Revelation? Well, because we're going to do like the Jews did, we're going to go back to the Old Testament and look at all the time those images came up. They know that. 
The Gentiles don't know that. The Romans don't know that. They don't understand these symbols and these messages, but the Jews would. And the first Christians only had the Old Testament at first, so they will as well. Maybe we need to read the Old Testament more, so we'll get it better when we get to Revelation. I think that's a great problem. People teaching Revelation who don't know the Old Testament first. So John is in distress. He's a brother and partner in the tribulation, verse 9 says. They're being persecuted. In fact, he's on, it, on the Isle of Patmos in exile. And he's there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's teaching the truth, and people don't want to hear it, so they sent him away. <laughs> and we're going to find out in chapter 6 that saints, that Christians are being martyred. Their blood is being spilled. They're being given to the lions. They're being hung up on tor as torches on poles. It's a horrible time to be a Christian, and God wants Christians not to give up. He's saying this physical body that they're about to destroy is not the end of your life. <laughs> it is a short time suffering for an eternity of bliss. And let me show you what it really looks like. That's what John is receiving as a message. Here's a man in his 90s that's on exile on this rocky island, and he gets this vision so he can encourage others. This is the Jesus that comes to John, and he's come to reveal certain victory. Verse 3 of the book says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So these would be sent out and people would read them before the church. The one who reads aloud. Blessed are those who hear and blessed are those who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. He's speaking of things they were going to be suffering. And so he's telling them, your, your blessing is in knowing these things ahead. In verse 7, he says he's coming. He's coming on the clouds. That's a judgment language from the Old Testament. Every time God comes on the clouds, watch out, he's judging somebody. He's coming in judgment on a nation or on, on a people. He's coming on the clouds to judge even those who pierced him. That would be the Romans and the Jews. Those are the ones who hung him on the cross. He's coming in judgment against those who've rejected him. And so he makes a lot of promises to the faithful saints. This is all just setting up what we're going to look at, but he makes all these promises. I'll give you a crown of life. I'll give you to eat from the manna. You can live in the Garden of Eden. You can be together with God forever. Those are the promises he's making to these who are suffering and hovering down because of their fear. And then he talks about a new heaven and a new earth that will be for those who overcome. Don't worry about this Roman world that's being destroyed and looks like violence. There's a new heaven and a new earth for you. And that's where I'm taking you. And that's the vision. These are all spiritual realities that are behind this broken physical world. And so Jesus, when he came to John, he didn't come as a baby in a manger. That had been the great sign of hope and victory. When, Cap oh, when, Captain, when, the, when King Ahaz was ruling and he was afraid of the Assyrians and afraid of the Israel, the northern kingdom, that were making an alliance to come down against him, Isaiah went to him and said, ask a sign from God. Ask any sign and God will give it. And, and Ahaz said, oh no, I could never do that. I'm too spiritual to ask for a sign. He didn't want to know what God said. He'd already made up his mind what he was going to do. He didn't want to follow God's rule. And so Isaiah said, well, God's going to give you a sign anyway. The virgin's going to conceive and have a child, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, he fills out that prophecy. He begins to talk about the things that are read so often at Christmas. The government would be on his shoulder. Unto us a child is born. All of these beautiful words. That was a word of hope that Israel was going to overcome Assyria and the northern kingdom that were coming against them, that God had a plan that went way beyond the near future, and it was going to come to a culmination when he sent his own son. So those were words of hope. But that wasn't going to help them right now. He's already come, and they're facing the sword, and this baby in the manger has already fulfilled what was going to happen in that time. But what about us? And we're suffering now. And so Jesus comes to John, but he doesn't come as a dying man on a cross. 
That's where the hope and the victory was won. Colossians chapter 2, he made a spectacle of Satan and all of Satan's forces. He nailed the law to the cross and made a spectacle out of Jewish religion. And he brought the truth. And yet, that's not the way he appears to John. A baby in a manger and a dying man on a cross don't inspire the hope that people need when they're suffering at the point of a sword. When they're suffering persecution, loss of family. Perhaps many of us have suffered very similar. Not at the point of a sword. But we decide we're going to serve the Lord and our family doesn't wish to serve the Lord. And they ridicule us for being Bible thumpers. I got that a lot. For being someone who just wants to do what God says. And they turn away. And maybe there's persecution at work. Maybe you've lost a job because you weren't willing to lie for a boss. We know people who've done that. So where do I find hope and encouragement to continue on? You know, what's interesting is John knew Jesus as his resurrected body. And yet Jesus didn't come to John in his resurrected form with the the nails proving that he had come off the cross, that it was really him. John had already known that comfort. They were glad when they saw the Lord. When you read 1 John chapter 1, he gushes. We were with him. I touched him. I beheld him. He was leaning on me and I was leaning on him at the Lord's Supper. And yet that's not the way Jesus comes to John when this suffering is so hot. He comes to him the way we see in Revelation chapter 1. All those appearances of Jesus are wonderful. And they're full of hope and they're full of promise. But God gave John and the suffering saints in the first century and really all of us something even greater, a vision that's greater than all of that. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think it's helpful to consider this. Even though Paul wasn't there, he didn't see the resurrected Lord in person like the others did. He didn't see perhaps Jesus in the manger. But he says, the love of Christ controls us. This is 2 Corinthians 5 starting at verse 14. Because we have concluded that one has died for all, therefore all have died. The truth is, this life we realize is not the real thing anymore. We've died to this life. We've got another life we're living for. So we've died. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's what God has done in Revelation chapter 1. We see Christ, but not the baby in the manger, not this man dying on a tree, not even the resurrected Christ that walked with them for 40 days. We see the glorified Lord that we serve in his state as he is now. And that's what I want to share with you here, this revelation of Jesus the glorified king. And it's such a beautiful picture, and I'm prayerful that it'll help you, that it'll energize you as you go into the new year. Whatever struggles you're dealing with, this is who we're serving. (laughs) And this is what he looks like, and this is the power he has. And just consider some of these images that were laid out for him. It's interesting that the first thing John sees when he turns, he hears this voice like a trumpet. Later on, he'll describe it as the roar of many waters, but he hears the voice talking to him, so he turns around. Who is it? (laughs) And when he turns around, the first thing he sees are seven gold lampstands. I think that's a terrible translation. What we're looking at is a menorah. You see that there's seven lamps on one stand. A lot of the images will have seven menorahs or something, but it's one. There's seven lamps on it. And what that shows John, what he would recognize right away, is that he is inside the temple. Jesus is standing before the lamp stand that that would provide the light. The temple originally was a tabernacle, was a tent, and there was no windows. There was no light getting in there. There was this lamp inside there. The light of God was there. (laughs) 
And so that's where Jesus is standing, right before these seven lamps. In Exodus 25 and 26, we get the description of how they were made with six coming off each side. There would be the one central pillar. So we've got seven lamps. And this is a place that John, in the flesh at least, would have been forbidden to enter. Under Old Testament law, if he had gone in and even seen this lampstand, he would have died. He was not allowed to go in. But now, Jesus invites him to come in. And in fact, by the writing of Revelation, Jesus is inviting us to come in as well. Hebrews says he's taken away the veil. At his death, he took away the veil. And he brought us into the holy place. And so here we stand. We'll find out later that the whole veil that separates the holy from the holy of holies is gone. This whole thing is the holy of holies. It's the presence of God. Being inside this temple is a major theme all through the book of Revelation. It is a symbol that the church is in God's presence. I just want to read to you from chapter 7, uh, verses 13 through 15, just to get this concept down. One of the elders addressed me. He's talking about these 144,000 worshipers that he sees. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of this great tribulation. They're the ones who are suffering here on the earth. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a beautiful image of heaven. But the concept is, these people, these worshipers, these ones that are being killed and persecuted for their faith, aren't even really on the earth. They're in God's presence. They're in God's temple. He's aware of what's going on. As they're crying in their agony and anguish and pain, He's wiping their tears. As they're lost in the darkness of this world, He's actually guiding them to living waters. As they're struggling through understanding what all this is about, this revelation is saying, hold on. It's about so much more than it looks like with the eyes. This is where you really are. You're before God's throne in heaven. And that's why the enemy is so upset, because the enemy can't really touch you. And so he's inside the temple. He's told later that these seven lampstands are the seven churches of Asia, which just further proves this point. The churches are inside the temple. This temple is enormous. This is not just Solomon's temple or Herod's great temple that was there. They had 3,000 people meeting in the temple courts. It's a pretty big building. But now you've got seven churches of Asia within this temple court. That's an amazing thing. Just these lampsticks here and these stars represent the seven churches of Asia. How much more space is there for more people to come in? That's the concept here. And this idea that we are in God's temple ought to mean something to us. It ought to prove that we have been sanctified. Only those who are holy could go in. God has sanctified us in the blood of Christ and He's brought us in. And as Jesus is before this lampstand, what He's doing as He's tending these lamps is He's doing the work of a high priest. In Leviticus chapter 24, again, like I said, I think if we knew the Old Testament better, we'd understand the, the book of Revelation better. This is a really clear image. Leviticus chapter 24 and the first four verses there, he's lining out in Leviticus what the feasts are that God has invited them to, and then he begins to talk about the work in the tabernacle or in the temple. Leviticus 24, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil beaten from olives for the lamp that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, Aaron, the high priest, 
shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly, shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. This was Aaron's work. This was the high priest's work. Both Numbers and Exodus described this process as he would come in in the morning and he would snuff out the, the candles. He would clean the wicks and he would re, relight it in the morning. And he, would relight it, uh, he, would, he would undo it in the morning and light it again in the evening. There was always the light of God's presence, whether on the altar during the day or on this lampstand during the night. The light was always lit. And the glorified Jesus then, we're seeing this image of him both as king and high priest, a fulfillment of all the prophecies that were written about him. I want to specifically look at Psalm 110. These are things that these early Jewish Christians would have understood when they see this image. Here's a king and a priest and a high priest working in the temple. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's who John is seeing standing in the temple when he first turns. The fact that he sees this lamp stand first shows him where he is. And there stands Jesus tending the wicks. And as he looks, he then sees Jesus behind the lampstand, and he's, he appears like a son of man. That's kind of a strange term, but that's what Jesus always called himself. We think of Jesus as son of God. That's what's the news to us. That's what he was proving when he came. But the thing that was odd for him is he's a son of man. He spent his eternity in heaven with God, Father, and then he comes to earth as a man. And so he calls himself repeatedly son of man. He's taken on Adam's characteristic to do what Adam couldn't do. He defeated the sin that Adam gave into. He was able to bring humanity back to the state that Adam and Eve were in in the garden that Adam and Eve lost when they sinned and were kicked out of the garden. Jesus came as a son of man. This term is actually reminiscent of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. I'd like to read just two verses there. Again, going back to the Old Testament helps us so much because you get these images that, again, would have been so fresh in the mind of Jews and Jewish Christians. They know these, these books. They know these, these prophecies that were given. But in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, here's a vision Daniel has. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. That's exactly what Revelation 1 says. Oh, come on the clouds. There's one like a son of man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It sure doesn't look like it. In our class today, we were talking about how people today will say, if Jesus is ruling, why doesn't it look like it? It didn't look like it to them either. But the reassurance is his kingdom can't be overthrown. It doesn't matter what it looks like to the eye. What's going on in truth is what matters. And that's what John is receiving, this image of Jesus as the promised king who is ruling over the entire world, not just this little piece where they're suffering. But Jesus is in every place. Jesus is clothed with this long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. It's an interesting description. And I think white is the concept here. It's certainly a linen robe. Some of the other translations bring out the idea that it was white. That's what we're looking at here. His clothing, though, even though he's the high priest, is not typical of the high priest. The high priest had this, this blue or golden 
garment that he usually wore when he was doing his service and a great big tall hat. There was gold actually woven into the garment, so some people called it the golden clothing, but the overall color of it would have been a blue. So why is he wearing white? One day, one day the high priest wore different clothing. On the Day of Atonement, he wore only the linen garments. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 4 and verse 23, as he goes in to do his service, he puts on only the white linen garments. Then when he goes out to do the normal high priestly service, not the Day of Atonement stuff, he puts his blue clothing back on and does that. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, there's a great reference to this concept. Why is it that Jesus looks always like the high priest on the Day of Atonement? Hebrews 7 says he is able to save to the utmost those for whom he serves because he always lives to make intercession for them. The argument before was all of the other priests would die. And then you'd have to get his son. And maybe he wasn't as good a guy as the priest you grew up under. And then he would die and his son would come along. And there was no chain of complete succession because they kept dying and they were impeded from really offering intercession before God. But Jesus died and came back to life, and now he always lives to make intercession. Jesus is the high priest we can count on. He's never not going to be there. It's never going to be his no good son that rises up to be the priest for a while. It's always going to be the one we know and can trust, and that's who John is seeing. Jesus' hair is white, like white wool. I love that that's the first description. That shouldn't be surprising at all. We know who Jesus is. John knows who Jesus is. It's in John's gospel that he quotes John the Baptist as saying, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why does his hair look like white wool? He's the Lamb. (laughs) He's the Lamb of God. He's the only one who is worthy to open the scroll of Revelation that's going to be in God's hand in Revelation chapter 5. John wanted so much to see what was on that scroll that when no one could open it, he began to cry. One of the elders touched him and said, don't cry. Here comes the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he looked again, he sees a lamb. It's this lamb, the lamb of God, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He opens the scroll and begins the story of God's revelation of how he's going to take care of his people that are suffering. In fact, the whole second half of the book, chapters 12 through 22, is this lamb that's been slain and yet is still standing that has overcome the dragon (laughs) that is Satan. That's what the story is. It looks from the eye like there's no hope. But those who are with the Lamb are going to overcome. That's the whole message of this book. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, and 13 through 17, they will be the ones who will stand in God's presence when the dragon has been defeated. The the ones who are with the Lamb will be victorious. John had also been there when Jesus was transfigured. His clothes and his face became bright. Luke says they became dazzling white. In Luke chapter 9, verse 29, Mark says they were so white that even a launderer's soap couldn't get anything that white. His nature, his holy and pure nature was shining forth from within. And God declared at that moment before them that Jesus is his beloved son. Listen to him. This idea of this bright white, this hair that's white like snow or like wool, reminds of that. And there's something else I think we see here. His aspect is similar to that of the Ancient of Days we read about before in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. But I want to look at Micah's rendering of this concept. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, it's a prophecy about the coming of the Christ. And I love this idea that he brings out so simply. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. <laughs> this one who came to rule Israel was declared before the beginning of time to be the ruler of Israel. He is the ancient of days. It is clearly Jehovah in Micah chapter 5. <laughs> and when we see the fulfillment of that in the New Testament, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus has the nature of Jehovah. Jehovah describes the Godhead, the, the divine nature. You've got Jehovah Father, Jehovah Son, Jehovah Spirit. Jesus is Jehovah Son in that sense. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, God clearly speaking says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That means the first and the last in the Greek alphabet. And then when you get to verse 17, when Jesus lays his hand on John, he says, don't worry, I'm the first and the last. He uses the same language that God the Father uses because they have the same nature. They are Jehovah. Jesus is, in fact, the ruling judge. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, who will give according to the deeds that have been done in this body. And so that's who John is seeing, this ancient Lamb of God, this ancient of days who has come to be the king and the ruler of God's people. It is not Rome who is ruling God's people. It's not crazy Nero. It's not Vespasian. It's not Domitian. It's not all these men who are threatening to kill them. It is the Lamb who is promising to help them overcome. That's who their ruler really is. And so as John looks a bit more, Jesus' eyes are like a flame of fire. I think if we were writing this today, we would say they were like lasers. That's the idea, this intense, bright light that's shining out. John had known Jesus, had looked into his eyes, had known him very well. But now these eyes are penetrating. There's something different about his aspect now. We think about Jesus' eyes for a moment. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, the rich young ruler comes to him and says, Great master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, Go and sell all your goods and give them to the poor. <laughs> and he went away sad. Jesus looked at him with love, and it wasn't enough. Later on in Luke chapter 22, verses 60 to 62, while Jesus is in there on trial, Peter's sitting out warming himself by the fire. We know the story. And so many times people come and say, you were with him. And he says, I don't even know who you're talking about. And after the third time, Luke brings out a detail that's so amazing. Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered what the Lord said. And he broke out in tears and ran out of the place. The eyes of Jesus had looked at Peter with disappointment because Peter denied him for the third time. And there are other times when we see Jesus intently looking at people, and he looks at them and says, my father and I are one. Just this idea that he's just looking at you as he teaches. John would have seen all of that, and yet these eyes, this is not the same Jesus that he knew on the earth. It's so much more. So think about for a moment the comfort of flames. If it's in a fireplace or a fire pit and you're roasting marshmallows, you're sitting around warming up by the fire, that's what Peter was doing there. But at the same time, those penetrating eyes looked over at him. Sometimes it's a very comforting thing to be near the flames. Sometimes it's very intimidating, and it just depends on what your situation is. In Mark chapter 2, there was a man who was paralyzed, and he heard that Jesus was back in Capernaum, and so he got four of his friends to take him up on the roof of the house. They couldn't even get in. And they lowered him down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, Son, when he saw their faith, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> he saw 
the faith that these men had. That was comforting. He forgave the man's sins. But in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13, we're given another picture. And I think we need to take, take a careful note of this. This is talking about the Word of God, and certainly that's one of the titles that Jesus carries, especially in the book of Revelation. I don't think that's the intent here in Hebrews. But even so, verse, verse 12 of Hebrews 4 talks about the Word and how it can divide between soul and spirit, joints and marrow. But look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He can see into the darkest places in our souls. That's why David said, look in me. See if there's anything in me that's missing. Please fix it. Give me a new heart. We need to have that attitude. Jesus can see the darkness that we're not allowed to admit to ourselves, that we don't even want to see. He can see it. He can penetrate it. and He can change us. His feet are like burnished bronze. There's an interesting detail that's sort of just subtle here. The priests serve barefoot. As John's looking at Jesus, he sees his feet. That is another detail that just proves he's in this priestly garb. In fact, there's not even a scripture that says they serve barefoot because all the scripture that describes their clothing just never describes shoes. It's a deduction that they were barefoot, but we know they were. In practice, they were. And Jesus is barefoot just like the priests. In fact, I think it's fascinating to think about. He is literally the one who brought the glad tidings on the mountains. He is the one who had beautiful feet, as described in Isaiah 52 and Romans chapter 10, and then the others who went out preaching his message. He is the preacher with beautiful feet, uh, above all other preachers with beautiful feet. But what's amazing that he focused on Jesus' feet is because the first prophecy of Jesus and others were about his feet, what his feet would do. In Genesis 3 and verse 15, he would stamp on the serpent's head. The serpent would bruise his heel, but he would kill the serpent by stomping on his head. In Romans 16 and verse 20, as Paul is writing, and the, the persecutions have already begun in Rome, he says, and the God who you serve will stamp out Satan under your feet soon. <laughs> that's, that's the promise that they needed to hear. Micah, again, this image in Micah is really interesting. Micah chapter 4 and verse 13. Here we're talking about God's people who were being oppressed by the neighboring nations around, and here's what God promised them. Micah 4, verse 13, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. This trampling underfoot is just a common, common theme in the Bible, because that's what God and his people are going to do to the enemies. That's where Rome's destiny is, is under the feet that are this solid of Christ. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, he talks about treading these grapes in the wine press, the grapes of wrath. Uh, Faulkner picked up on that idea, uh, or not Faulkner, Steinbeck picked up on that idea, and this concept of the grapes of wrath as Jesus is trotting in the wine press, the enemies and their blood is, is going out like, uh, like grapes, uh, grape juice. Jesus is victorious. That's the point. These feet are, are undeniably strong. Something else about them I think is interesting as well. Years ago, I used to work selling candles, and everybody wanted the brass bases for these candles. And you had some you could take on a ship because these brass bases were so solid they wouldn't slide and they wouldn't tilt. They would, they would maintain the right angle for these, uh, for these candles. So everybody was looking for the brass candlesticks. Brass is solid, and in the ancient world, this bronze or brass was one of the purest metals. And Jesus' feet then are solid and immovable. 
Psalm 18, verse 2 talks about God as the rock. That's what this is. Jesus is stable. You're not going to push him over. You're not going to lead him away somewhere else that he doesn't want to be. He's got these solid feet. And something else, just interesting. Bronze that's refined in a furnace is pure. You purify metals by putting them through the, the heat. And so Jesus is described here from hair to toe as being pure, white, refined, and purified. Just this beautiful image of the one we're serving who's bringing us into this holy relationship. Finally, he turns and hears the voice. And the voice is like many waters. And sometimes that's an image of great power. You ever been to Niagara Falls? There's a great uh, falls in Brazil as well, Iguazu Falls, and it is just overwhelming when you hear the sound of that water. Oh, you just hear that roar. Or a storm brewing with all that water coming down. Sometimes it's just overwhelming. How do you think the flood sounded when that began and those people running in terror? Or how about the sound of God saying, let there be light. I don't know what that sounded like, but the universe responded by creating light. That must have been a powerful voice. But sometimes many waters can also be calming. The sound of light rain, it's still a lot of water, but it's the way it's coming down that produces a calming effect. It's great to sleep under a tin roof with a light rain trickling on it. Or the sound of the ocean at night that at first brings fear, but as you stand there a little bit longer, it just has this calming sound. In fact, they sell wave machines to make that sound so you can sleep to it because it's so calming, this white noise of the ocean effect. The very man who called everything into existence by the power of his voice, God, is the same one who in the boat, when the storm came up, said, peace, be still, and the whole storm stopped. That's a powerful yet calming voice. It's the same voice that said, Talitha kumi, to a little girl who had just died. Her father was desperate. And Jesus said, don't be desperate, only believe. And he went home with them, and he raised the little girl up just by speaking to her. <laughs> what a calming effect his voice must have had, that Jairus went with him for his little daughter to be raised. That's the God we're serving. <laughs> That's what John heard as he turned around to hear the voice. And there stood Jesus with seven stars in his right hand. How many stars could you hold in your hand? It's incredible to think about this. I know we're looking at just an image. This is a vision. But can you imagine if we're looking at space? We're told in Isaiah 40 that God measured the expanse of the heavens with a palm. <laughs> like, that's how God measured out. He weighed the oceans in the cups of his hands. The immensity of God is the idea here that's being expressed, certainly in Isaiah, in Job, and I think that's part of the image here. God can hold seven stars in one hand. On the playground, sometimes when we'd get in trouble and get in a fight, we'd be like, well, my dad can beat up your dad. <laughs> I remember little boys doing that. And that's the concept here. God is bigger than Rome. Don't be frightened of the dragon. Don't be frightened of their threats. What can man do to you if you're zealous for what's good is what Peter would write about the same time. God is bigger than any persecution. I was studying with a guy one time who was going through a lot of terrible things. And he had some big decisions to make about his marriage and about some other things he needed to do. And he was concerned. He asked me to talk about these things. I had no idea they were going on in his life. I'd been studying with him for a few weeks. And he said, I want to talk about some serious things. And so we sat down and talked through them. I prayed with him and said, you've got some decisions to make. You know what you need to do. He said, I know. I'm not sure my wife is going to be up for all that we have to do. But I know. And I said, I want you to do yourself a favor and do me a favor before our next time to study. Take out a piece of paper and write down all of these major decisions, all these major problems on one column. On the other column, write God. 
And which one's bigger? Which one of those is bigger? He said, I know the answer, but I'm going to do it. When I came back, he had decided he couldn't do it. He wasn't willing to put his trust enough into God. And he said, I want you to know that I really appreciate it, but go study with somebody who's going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It was really sad. I left there crying. God is bigger. I don't care what it is. God is bigger. They were facing certain death. And he said, it's not death. That's the first death. The second death can't touch you. Let them kill you. Die for your faith. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I'm so thankful we don't face that decision here. There are people in the world who are. And this book is certainly a comfort to them. Remembering what God did as he stopped the mouths of lions because of Daniel's faith. What he did with Joseph there in Egypt as he brought a whole family in and then the rest of the earth and saved them from the famine because of his faith. That's what God can do. Whether or not we live or die, Daniel's friend said, doesn't matter. We're going to serve God. (laughs) He'll decide. Jesus is bigger than any persecution. If the stars are meant to just be these symbols, he tells us later these are the angels or the messengers that are being sent out to the churches. They're in Jesus' control. They're in his right hand of power. And as you go through the book of Revelation, angels are very powerful. In chapter 8 and in chapter 10, we've got angels that are so big that one foot is in the ocean while the other's out on the land and their legs are like pillars. And they're standing there serving those who will inherit salvation. That's what Hebrews 1 tells us the angels were created for. They're messengers of God for those who will inherit salvation. They're there for us. They're at God's disposal for our service. And they're in Jesus' right hand. It's amazing to think about the power and the glory of this Lord that that John saw. He looked at his mouth, and there's a sword, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Hebrews 4.12, it's that sword that distinguishes between soul and spirit, between bone and marrow, that can show us everything we need to know about ourselves so we can serve in truth. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, it's the sword of the spirit. It's the only offensive weapon that our armor of God has because we need it to battle against the enemy. In Roman, in Revelation 19, verse 15 and verse 21, as Jesus rides forth in victory on this pale horse, he's got a sword on his thigh. <laughs> he's also got a sword coming out of his mouth. <laughs> and that's the sword of truth. It's the word of truth that grants and guarantees the victory. That's what we need to believe in. And that's what we need to stand for. It's his word of truth that defeats the power of the enemy. Look at the power it has to defeat the enemy within our own lives and in the lives of others around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Such a beautiful text. I think we do well to read this more often. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 3. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's our own thoughts and the thoughts of others. What is more powerful than anything else? The truth. The truth. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9-12, through there's the battle. He depicts it again. All these lying signs and wonders, the working of Satan. And he says it's for those who do not have a love of the truth that God will even let them believe lies. He'll send the delusion so they can believe the lies. God wants us to believe the truth. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, verse 32, if you believe the truth, the truth will set you free. That's 
what these who are serving Christ know. And that's what the Romans have rejected, and they cannot stand because truth will out in the end. And so he looks a little closer and sees Jesus' face as bright as the sun shining in its fullness. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. You cannot see the sun. You can try. You can look at it, but you actually can't see the sun. Your eye is not capable because of the brightness that it puts out. What you see is the corona. What you see is the brightness of the sun. The actual sun itself you can't see. In fact, if you try too long, it hurts. <laughs> uh, you just can't do it. John can't see God's face, but he sees the radiance of God in Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, in Christ dwells the fullness of Godhead bodily. We meet God when we meet Christ. And we see him all through the New Testament. We know what God would be if God were a man, what he expects us to be as men trying to become more like him. He's transforming us into his image. And this bright face just reflects the absolute brilliance of God. So here's John meeting Jesus in this glorified image. And he knows Jesus, and yet he's overwhelmed by what he sees now. I fell at his feet as though dead, he says in verse 17. John had been laying back on Jesus' chest during the Lord's Supper. That's how intimate they were. John 21 and verse 20 tells us he was laying back there. And Peter said, John, ask him which one's going to betray us. <laughs> because John was right there and could ask him. It's not the same Jesus he knew. This is not just a man. This is the glorified Lord. This is who we serve. How must this have changed the rest of John's time in exile? We know he was actually released from exile toward the end of his life. But how much did that make being on that craggy island better for him? <laughs> how about the rest of his life? After seeing this, how must the rest of his life been changed? How must it change our lives if we really understand? We are in God's very presence, in the temple, sanctified by the blood of this one who gave himself for us. And this is who he is. He's not still that baby in the manger. He's not still nailed on that cross. He's not even still walking around after coming down off the cross. He is glorified and he's able to handle whatever can be thrown at you and whatever people can throw at him. He laid his right hand on John. John is terrified. He's laying as dead. Jesus, with that right hand that's holding the angels and the stars, lays his hand on John. This same powerful hand that measured the heavens and commands the angels has a gentleness to it. They can lay it on John and say, fear not. <laughs> the Lord is powerful against the enemy. We know this hand can crush the enemy, but he also stretched out his hands and suffered so that we could be comforted in eternity. The same hand that can kill the wolf can cuddle the sheep. <laughs> And that's what we see in this risen Lord. And that's who we serve. Jesus is the first and the last. That's why we not fear. He is the author and the origin of all that is good. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who gave us the faith. He's the one who will carry us through to the end if we'll just rely on him. The truth is he has the final say. Evil cannot triumph, even though it looks like it's triumphing. It looked like it on the cross. But he made a spectacle of it on the cross because that's when the victory was won. Every time Satan thinks he's won, Jesus and God just prove he lost again. <laughs> and he did it most at the cross. What is the final word? Jesus is still alive. The cross didn't finish him off. He died, but he's back alive again. And now he's alive forevermore. 
And his resurrection is the proof that death cannot hold him. And really what it is, it's the proof that death can't hold us. He tells John, I've got the keys of death and of Hades. I'm the one who opens the door to death. If you want to be in there, go on. But I don't want you in there. I can open and take you out. I've got, I've got the keys to Hades. No one can hold you that I don't want to hold you. If you're with me, then we're escaping death and Hades. John 3, 16. We started out this morning looking at the Lord's Supper with that verse. God didn't want anyone to perish. That's why he sent his son. And through what Jesus suffered, he picked up the keys to death and Hades so that Paul could write to the Corinthians as they were struggling, as they weren't even sure what to believe anymore, he could write this to them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I want to leave you with these words coming from this glorified Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the parable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. What can man do to you? What can all your problems do to you? Nothing. God is bigger. Jesus, who we serve, is bigger than anything that the world is going to throw at you, that Satan is going to throw at you, bigger than Satan. Trust him. Do his will. Give yourself to him. Worship him today. Worship him every day. He's the one who's worth it. So many are looking at Christ today because it's Christmas. Let's look at Christ every day. He's come into this world. He's done what he came to do. And now he's glorified and reigning and ruling above it. And we get to be a part of that with him. If you're not a Christian, you don't get to be a part of that. You're suffering anyway. You're going to suffer because this world only offers suffering. You may have a short time of glee, but suffering is coming and death is coming. We cannot inherit the kingdom of God in the flesh. Death has to come even for those who are serving the Lord. But knowing that makes it that much more poignant that we be teaching now and makes us that more prepared when the moment comes. We want to help you be prepared. If you're not a Christian, you're willing to confess that Jesus is Lord. You've seen who he is. You've seen what he's done and what he wants to do for you. Come to him, repentant of your sins. Let him wash those away. Let him bring you purified into the temple of God where he can wipe away every tear. We want to help you get that. If you already have that, but you've been struggling, you've forgotten how strong he is, you're looking perhaps still at a baby in a manger, still the man on the cross. You haven't let that full work come to your life. Serve him as the risen and glorified Lord. Let us help you do that as well. Whatever you need, please make it known. We're going to sing this song to encourage your, your, uh, uh, your obedience. <laughs>